Welcome to Homework is Stupid and Other Stuff Not a Parent to a Parent. This podcast illuminates the issues of our kids, their education, and offers perspective from an expert point of view, personal experience, and the research. I'm Lauren Bongiovanni. I'm a mom, a school psychologist, and your host. Today, my guest, Amanda Vander Hayden, we're talking about the science of math. Dr. Vander Hayden is a private consultant and researcher who has directed and evaluated numerous school-wide intervention and reform efforts. She is the founder of Spring Math, a web-based comprehensive mathematics system which targets struggling students on a large-scale basis and covers concepts from numeracy to algebra. It's widely used in the United States and has shown strong gains in math achievement. Her work has been featured on Education News Parents Can Use, on PBS, and The Learning Channel. Dr. Vander Hayden has published more than 95 scholarly articles and chapters, seven books, and has given keynote addresses to state school psychology associations and state departments of education in 31 states and Singapore. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Vander Hayden, Amanda. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. And I wanted to start with a story um, about my mother. She is 81 years old. And she recently told me that when she was in seventh grade, her math teacher said to her, you're just not that good at math. And I noticed during my childhood and growing up that she would never come close. She didn't want to touch a checkbook. She didn't like carrying cash. She didn't like to do anything with numbers. And I never really understood this until I asked her about it. And she said when she thought about it, that it really went back to um, having her teacher say she wasn't any good at math. And it really set this lifelong trajectory. So as a school psychologist, as someone who has worked with students and adults at the community college level. It's one of those things that I often hear people either, it's like there's two kinds of people in the world. They either love math and think they're good at it, or they think it's scary. I'm fascinated what you think about that. We all hear this. This is, I mean, if you talk about math at a cocktail party, you know, if you say you're interested (laughs) in math, this is exactly the kind of life story that people will tell you, which is, you know, it just really highlights how critical what adults say to young children can be, right? So not, not just teachers, but parents. Often parents stimulate anxiety or lack of confidence around math as though we have two separate brains, one of which can handle mathematical thinking and one of which is all about English language arts, which is utter foolishness. I mean, if you can make analogies with words and comparisons with, you know, um, vocabulary that is not related to math, then you can do the same thing with numerical terms. It's just that we all have one brain. So I think this is total, total foolishness. But unfortunately, it does become kind of this internalized message that then, you know, um, undermines uh, confidence, causes children to engage with math less because they think I'm not good at it. They don't want to ask questions in the math classroom because they think, oh, then my teacher will know I'm not good at it, will confirm my greatest fear. And that actually compromises deeper math learning. So it really begets itself, you know, this fear leads to less engagement with math content, which over time weakens um, skill performance, right? Absolutely. Uh, and when you think about it, math 
is it infiltrates all parts of our life in living, whether we become, you know, whether we do jobs that involve direct math or not, it still is a part of our life. So I want to talk to you about what the science tells us about teaching and learning math, and maybe we can debunk some of those myths and fears with evidence. Um, first of all, I, I am fascinated with your passion for math, and I want to know how this developed for you. And I'd like for you to tell me the story of what you remember about your own perception of math as a kid and the story of how you came to dedicate your career to math. Well, you know, I was thinking when you were telling me about your mom, I was thinking, you know, I really sort of had the opposite experience. So um, there's a teacher in sixth grade and her name was Pat Petty. And I'm still on Facebook with her. And Pat Petty told me I was good at math. And I thought, well, I've never heard this before. I think, in, in fact, maybe the message I got at home is that my brother was good at math, but maybe math was not my strength. I was the one who was really maybe going to be a writer. I was a smart, good reader, and my brother was good at math. And so I just some, somehow came to school thinking, I'm okay at math, but it's not easy, so I must not be good at it, right? Um, and then I met Miss Petty, sixth grade math teacher, sixth grade teacher, period. And she said to me, you know, you're really good at math. And uh, then I went on to junior high and high school. And I got, I at times got different messages about that. So I think I can relate to your mom's experience that you're not really sure if you're good at math or not. And I really did not discover that I was really good at math until I became a PhD in the field <laughs> and really was really helping children who struggle in math and helping teachers become better teachers of math. Because to me, any academic behavior is just behavior behavior that can be defined. It can be articulated in terms of a, a task hierarchy that's very logical. And then we just can meet the learner where they are by sampling back and finding the gaps. And then we just provide um, evidence-based tactics that are very simple, like prompting for correct responding and giving examples of correct and incorrect responding and immediate corrective feedback and lots of opportunities to practice at a high rate of success. So these are known tactics that will improve any kind of behavior you want to target, whether it's learning to play the piano or it's becoming better at math. And I think what, what happened for me is all of that helped me discover the way in which K-12 education misserves so many children, particularly in math. And I can't help but wonder if maybe I got this message in my early grades from teachers that I was especially a great reader and a good um, writer because they probably especially liked to teach reading and writing as elementary teachers often do. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's part of it. And the way I became really passionate about helping systems build their capacity to better serve children in, in math outcomes was really out of necessity. So uh, my my husband was a medical resident and he when he finished uh, medical school and he applied to residency, we ended up going to Tucson, Arizona. And I left this great faculty job to, to go with him and landed in Tucson and I had to have a job to pay the bills. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> there was a district looking for a school psychologist and I thought, 
gosh, I've never really worked as a real school psychologist. I've only been a faculty member, but uh, I think I could do it. It'd be a lot of fun. Let me just check this district out. And so I walked into this district and said, um, well, I don't know if I know how to do real school psychology, but I know how to do this stuff. We call it curriculum-based measurement. And then we screen the class. If performance looks like this, then we would call this, you know, a class that needs a class-wide intervention, or we might we might screen a child who's not reading well, and we might say, this child is at risk for poor outcomes, so let's do a can't-do-won't-do assessment and see if we get this giant burst in performance with simple incentives, which tells us something really important about the learner so we can um, get a better result for the child. And I'm sort of showing the system, these graphs that I'm pulling out of my briefcase because I've got them printed on paper. <laughs> and they said, you know what? This sounds really interesting. Will you come back tomorrow and do this again? And I said, sure. So I came back the next day and they had a little bigger audience of leaders in this tiny little district outside of um, Tucson, Arizona called Vail. And in that meeting, they said, okay, we're going to hire you. And this is very unconventional. Um, we, whether or not we keep you in, in a year will depend on the results that we get. And they had never at that time heard of curriculum-based measurement or functional assessment. And so we began to do what now, of course, has come to be called RTI. But all of this long windup is to tell you that when we screened the system, which I guided them to do with one school, and it, that was super fun. Lori Emery was the principal. Um, the school was Acacia Elementary in Vail, Arizona. We found a math problem. And then we began to screen other schools and found that it was actually a systemic, you know, district-wide math problem. And of course, it worked out well, as data often do, because they confirm data often, if they're well collected and meaningful data, will just confirm what people suspected anyway. And it's a great way to get some credibility. Mm -hmm. And they sort of knew they had a math problem, but they weren't 100% confident. Year-end testing was a brand new concept. It, they had just given the first state test um, that spring, and this would have been about 2001-2002. And of course, it said they had a math problem. So they were already sort of worried about that. And, and so we had to fix a math problem. And so I became fascinated at solving that problem for that system. And within the first year of implementation, their um, determination of eligibility in their district for learning disabilities went from 6% of their population to 3.5%. Wow. And, and their math achievement that year and over the following three years, they went from about 50% proficient on the year-end test to above 95% proficient in every school. And they stayed there for ever since. This was, you know, this would have been between 2002, I guess, and 2005 year-end tests. Uh, they stayed there ever since. And in fact, they, they routinely help other systems do what we did, which was just good, basic response to intervention for math. It's easy to do. It's not, it's, it's actually become easier for systems to do it because in the intervening decades, we've had um, standards like Common Core state standards emerge, which give us really good, good map against which to measure are we on track or not with, with learning um, across grade levels, right? That didn't, that didn't exist in the late 90s. So you sort of had to figure that out. And now, of course, that's, that's almost like uh, algorithmic. 
You know, that's such a remarkable story and such a testament to how important for systems to organize their approach and how they look at information, because it seems that we're always trying to figure out what's wrong with an individual child, right? Yeah. I mean, what, what, is, what is that about? I mean, I, I often say to people, learning is a very predictable outcome of highly effective instruction. And so when you don't see learning, it's not mysterious. You, your first response should not be, what is wrong with this person, child, learner? It should be, what was wrong with the instruction? Because effective instruction, by definition, produces an effect on learning. And if it doesn't, then there was something, the independent variable of concern is the instruction. Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, shout out to Miss Petty. Yeah. Uh, I love that story that so long ago when you were in sixth grade that she said that you were good at math. And it just also shows how important those comments from teachers are to kids. You can do math. You, you can read. They really do stay with people throughout their lives. So thank you, Miss Petty. Yes, she's an extraordinary woman. I remember in sixth grade, she gave every child a paperback book, a different one for Christmas. Mm. Um, she gave me Jane Eyre, which, mm. you no, know, I'm not the biggest fan yeah. <laughs> or genre, but she wrote a personal note on the inside cover of that book. So I still have that book. Mm. And, and she said, I think you could be a writer someday too. So I think part of what was so lovely about her is that what she really nailed was building the relationship and the rapport with every child in her class. And mm -hmm. that, that made you feel safe to take risks and ask questions. You know, I think about this um, with kids who are very capable. So high performing kids can actually be quite vulnerable in our systems because they can learn that I am smart because the work comes easily to me. Mm -hmm. Well, that just means the work is wrong for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're not working your edge. It's not so right. the fact that it's easy for you does not mean that you are especially capable, right? That just means we're not working your edge. So it's interesting the kinds of th messages that children can internalize that can that can really do harm later. So let's take it back since we're talking about the '90s, and let's go back even farther to the '70s when I learned math. Um, how has math instruction and content changed in this country since then? And are we moving uh, more toward evidence-based instruction? Well, I hope so. I mean, I want to be optimistic about this, but, you know, there is so much philosophy-based practice that is out there. And, and I will say, I, have, I take a little encouragement because I am beginning to hear noise, um, sort of, you know, momentum building, very similar to the science of writing, reading movement, if you're familiar with that. That has been a highly effective grassroots movement really led by parents who have said, you know what, we demand effective reading instruction for all students. What is the problem? We don't care if your philosophy is that whole language is the way to go or a three queuing system is effective or whatever. We don't care about that. What we care about is that we want all children to learn to be proficient readers. And they've actually been amazingly effective because they were able to say that 
this is beyond just requiring dyslexia screening in schools. This is really requiring that um, children have access to high quality um, instruction, which means word level decoding in the early grades, right? In math, I think we're starting to see a similar uptick in parents who are saying, you know what, I really don't care. If you want to have some philosophy-based debate about old math and new math or um, building conceptual understanding versus building fluent performance, I just want my child to be able to do math. And Mm -hmm. the outcome of K-12 should be to make every child uh, be capable of experiencing success should they choose to go to college. So having to enroll in a remedial math course is, is one of the strongest predictors that you will not complete your two or four year degree in any academic major. By a certain grade? Is it by, I understand um, from some of your work that it's by a much younger grade than people would think. That's right. So we know who those children are actually very early because failing to hit certain milestones along the way predicts you will not hit the later milestones. So, for example, there's a paper by um, Kuhn and Davis that came out in 2019. Great study. And they examined what um, children's likelihood of meeting the college readiness benchmark on the ACT and what they and what kind of coursework they took in high school. And what they found is after you corrected for fifth grade math performance, it did not matter whether children took advanced course sequences in high school in this study in Mississippi or if they took remedial track math courses in high school in terms of their likelihood of meeting the college readiness benchmark on the ACT. And so I had people ask me about that and go, well, does that mean then that advanced coursework doesn't matter? And I said, no, 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 that's not it. Exactly. It's that what we do in the very early years in terms of building foundational skills in math, it either allows advanced math um, content to be accessible to the child or not. So if children have not been ready to profit from advanced coursework in math, which was, is very definable, that's very measurable and knowable, that is not mysterious, mysterious then they will not have success um, in terms of meeting that college readiness benchmark. Then they are very likely to enroll in a remedial math course to, when they get into college. And it becomes a barrier in their lives that in effect is a barrier to their um, you know, future economic lives, right? So my, my opinion is that it is really a matter of stewardship. We really, in, in K-12, should be able to deliver for all children the removal of that potential barrier. And we do that by helping children hit very predictable milestone understandings, you know, numeracy in the early grades, um, proficiency with whole number operations in the, you know, grade th- by grade three, um, proficiency with pr- proportional understanding in grades five and six, solving linear equations and all the prerequisites associated with that by grade eight. And if we don't deliver those proficiencies for students, you're, you're absolutely right, Lauren, that very early on, we can say this child is not likely to meet the college readiness benchmark, just like Kuhn and Davis found in their paper. So let's say that you're a parent of a ninth grader right now who's struggling in math and is missing some of those benchmark predictors. 
or a teacher who teaches ninth grade math, and you have students who clearly um, need, you know, to develop more understanding, what can be done for kids who are older? Well, yeah, it's interesting. This this is probably something we hear a lot in school psychology, that it's sort of like the alarms go off when children are um, getting older and systems realize there's a problem and they say, well, let's start with the ninth graders. Let's fix it at grades nine through 12. And I, I always understand that urgency because it, they, they're right in a sense that those children are about to leave K-12. And so we really want to fix anything we've gotten wrong before they go because we, we want them to have optimal outcomes. But, you know, there's there's a guy I admire very much. His name is John Carruth, and he was he is now the superintendent in Vail, Arizona, that I already told a story about. But he used to say this quote, and I loved it, which is, let's put the uh, fence at the edge of the cliff instead of the ambulance at the bottom. <laughs> it turns out that just like in reading, when you provide... Um, corrective interventions, supplemental supports earlier, you can actually prevent the need for more costly and, you know, in terms of time, in terms of dollars, in terms of duration interventions, um, you can prevent the need for those on the back end. So at a systems level, it's really important that if you, if you want to start with trying to help older students avoid these bad outcomes that they might experience academically by correcting some gaps that have accumulated probably beginning from kindergarten, their kindergarten experience forward. That's understandable. You should absolutely pair that with an investment of working with younger children in your system so that you can get, you can get and recoup those prevention benefits. Those are very measurable. They actually reduce the cost of your corrective effort over time and give you more success. But yes, your question about, is there anything you can do with with older learners? For the first thing I would want to say, and I often say to systems um, from an RTI perspective, is you would want to take a look and make sure you don't have a systemic problem. Chances are you do, and we find it all the time. So classified math intervention is a wonderful tactic to having your toolkit, if you are an RTI implementer, an academic coach, math teacher, um, a school psychologist. It's easy to deploy. It takes about, at the older grades, it takes about 15 minutes per day, maybe 16 minutes per day. And it works by having children get into working pairs. And uh, so you typically will pair a higher performer with a, with a slightly lower performer, middle students with each other, and have them work together to practice correct responding on the, on a, the right difficulty level that, you, that you're targeting that you want to start with. And you sort of do that by building a sequence of school skills that begin with below grade level content, but really are necessary prerequisites to enable successful performance on grade level. And uh, you want to make sure that as they hit mastery on an early skill, that sets them up for success in the other skills that they're going to practice in that same sequence. And the reason I spent time saying that is that by design, class-wide intervention is a fluency building intervention. And so that is not an appropriate um, intervention format that you would want to be trying to establish new understanding or acquisition of, of a new skill. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And this probably is a good time then. This leads us right into your invention, which is spring math. And so would you talk about what it is and how it works? 
it is my life's work. I mean, I think looking back, who knew I was going to become such a passionate math intervention person? But I think, you know, we school psychologists want to be useful to teachers. We want to be useful to teachers and help them get better results for students. And I have yet to ever meet a teacher that does not want the best for his or her students. I, they, I don't know who these, these, there's no such thing as a lazy, unmotivated teacher. You can show a teacher how to get a better result for a student. They will move, he- move heaven and earth to do it. It's funny sometimes with teachers, you know, in, in the land of RTI, often what gets in their way in terms of implementation is they have too many children who look like they need intervention. And you will say, but you can't work with six children who need intervention. So let's just start with one and then they'll cheat and give it to all six. (laughs) But they don't have enough time to do it justice and it it causes them to get a lesser result. So a lot of that, it's coming from a place of they really want to help all children and get a better result. So Spring Math was really just designed to be kind of the surgical support to the teacher as the surgeon to work with the children. And what we are, you know, what we are able to do is, is operate behind the scenes in a very kind of simple user interface for the teacher. The teacher logs into a dashboard and we kind of hand the teacher exactly what the teacher needs when they need it. So our goal is to empower the teacher to get a better result by really using and harvesting the data behind the scenes. So we do all this sort of heavy lifting. The screening is provided to the teacher. Um, We also interpret the data. So we will say, it looks like you have a class-wide problem. Click here to start a class-wide intervention. And then the protocol comes up. It's printable to the teacher. The teacher can um, access short videos to see how you know, to do that. It really is a very simple process. We mat, we pair the children into working pairs. If the median score in the class is in uh, the frustrational range, indicating that they're not ready for a fluency building intervention in that skill, we will say, oh, it looks like you need to actually do a quick acquisition lesson. Here's the protocol to do it. Everything in the protocol is scripted for the teacher. So including tactics to build conceptual understanding related to that skill. So what we do is we just use the computer and the behind the scenes work to help the teacher really deliver surgically precise, effective evidence-based intervention, but in a way that it actually really feels pretty simple for the teacher. So to give you a sense of what I mean by that, let's say we have gotten to tier three intervention for a student. And so just for for parents or people who might be listening whose districts don't use a formal RTI, explain what tier three is so they understand. Consider that to be intensive, individualized intervention, which we will not really allow a teacher to do. We will allow a coach to enable that behind the scenes for specific children if they want to. But for the most part, we if there is a class-wide problem, then we deliver class-wide intervention first. And we will read the data as we're graphing performance for the teacher each week and advancing to the next skill and providing new materials. We're reading the data behind the scenes so that we can look at the responsiveness of the class as a whole and the child in that context. And then we will say, oh, we have found a child who is in need of intensive individualized intervention. Click here to get started. Um, And then the system will actually do the assessment, the diagnostic assessment. We call it a drill down assessment to identify exactly which which 
skills should be targeted and whether the child needs an acquisition lesson or um, a fluency building lesson. And to give you a sense of the scope and how what feels maybe simple to the teacher, we hope, we hear it feels simple, we want it to feel simple, is really quite complex. So to give you a sense, there are about 130 skills that you know we can access at any point in time based on what the child might need. And there are 550 individualized intensive interventions that are scripted with all necessary materials to enable that um, intervention. And then there are these decision trees that connect each intervention, individual intervention, to child proficiency, measured child proficiency. So that's a, if, if you really sort of imagine handing that to a teacher in the form of a book, well, like a manual, it would be overwhelming mm-hmm. and you couldn't fit it in a single book. So it would be boxes and boxes of materials. And we would be saying, well, if the score on this assessment looks like this, then go give this assessment. And what we know is that teachers are very busy. Humans are very busy. And the more complex an implementation is, the less likely it is to happen with quality. So the purpose of Spring Math, really, the, our theory of change is that we can increase intervention efficacy and by increasing correct selection of a evidence-based intervention because we automate that behind the scenes and that we improve implementation integrity or use of these interventions Again, because we automate everything around it. So we do the interpretation, we pull what you need, and it just comes up as a button to click right in the teacher's user dashboard. And the other thing that we're really proud about, I'm really proud about with the tool is that we are finding ways to help the teacher be really strongly rewarded by correct implementation. So when the teacher is you know, it's like being on a diet, trying to lose weight, which I guess it's the new year. We're all trying to do that now. Um, you wouldn't want to be on a diet and then not be able to step on a scale except, you know, maybe next till next December. You wouldn't sustain it. So we find ways to embed right inside the teacher's experience and the child's experience and the parent's experience these Um, progress graphs that populate and let the teacher really be rewarded by the use of an intervention. And that, again, it comes back to what we really, you know, believe and know to be true, which is effective intervention is or instruction is instruction that produces effect an effect on learning, period. So if a parent is listening to this, they could think of spring math as a way that their child's teacher can identify where their child is struggling and then provide interventions in a way that can be tracked so they can see if their child is responding and making progress. And this can be done in a class-wide manner, which is um, in in an effective way for a teacher so that she can manage multiple students who are doing the same thing, but at different levels. Yeah, and we routinely see um, schools gain um, large percentages proficiency on the year-end test with the use of class-wide math intervention. We publish those data. We we look at them in terms of program evaluation now, but we've published these data in peer-reviewed journals over the years. We get a very large effect size for class-wide math intervention. Um, it also gives us, you know, for the school site kind of data wonks out there, it gives us a way to be much more accurate about identifying who is in need of individual intervention too. And 
in school psychology, you know, there's sometimes been a tendency in this in our screening systems to use uh, like a norm reference cutoff. So we'll say, you know, if you're in the bottom 20% of um, children, then you are in need of an intensive individualized intervention or small group intervention. And if you're above the 20th percentile, then you don't. And I have always said, well, that makes absolutely no sense because it really depends on the context in which you are being instructed. It could be in your context that that means 70% of the kids in your class need need intensive individualized intervention, which is not possible for a teacher to manage and deliver with fidelity so that it can work. So class-wide intervention is a very powerful, high-yield tactic that most people should, as a parent, you would want to see that that is available for your child in a school system in, in reading and in math, really, if it's needed. And we know that based upon the data. But it also becomes a very powerful mechanism by which to identify who's really in trouble and, and needs something more. And when children need more, what we want to do is make sure that we do some follow-up assessment so that we can co correctly select the intensive individual intervention for the student. And if children, more than one child needs the same in intensive individual intervention, which is not uncommon, then they become a logical small group. And as children learn at different paces and grow at different paces, they need to be able to change groups. So the other thing we've learned in the world of RTI is that static groups of kids don't serve kids. They serve structures. You know, they serve the system in terms of making it sort of easy to say, okay, we did tier two intervention because we chose and we set aside time for small group intervention. But if you selected your groups at the beginning of the year and you put kids in those groups and you left them there no matter what their performance did over the next several weeks, then that really wasn't about serving kids. That was about serving the system. Do you have any idea from your work and your research how many uh, school districts or states use an effective method for teaching math and then of that how many use an effective method for intervention? And how different does that look from district to district? Yeah, there's a lot of variability. I know you know that because you've worked in lots of systems and some do it better than others. You know? And I'm, I'm a parent who has raised um, children and my, I have one who is an 11th grader and I have a, an eighth grader. So there is a lot of variability. And even, you know, I will say there's a lot of vulnerable children sitting in independent school settings because independent schools are often filled with what we might call instruction-proof kids. So these are children who have um, access to other resources. They've probably um, share certain characteristics like parents who might buy tutoring for their children. Well, that covers up poor math instruction, right? If you're mm -hmm. using tutoring to get a better result. So um, just, just because you're paying tuition doesn't mean you're necessarily getting better instruction. And I would say, I think it would be a worthwhile social justice goal of my lifetime to see access to highly effective instruction become more the norm. I don't think it is. I think it's actually pretty dismal. I think in most cases, you have spotty quality of instruction, even within a school, sometimes within a grade within a school. And so if you're lucky and you happen to get a teacher who is very knowledgeable about the science of reading and uses 
um, accurate progress monitoring to see if their instruction is producing the desired results for students in the class and then makes adjustments accordingly, then you're in a pretty good spot. But if you, and in math, it's the same thing. If you have a teacher who happens to like to teach math and is able to sort of tune out a lot of the noise around, well, you have to do productive struggle or this, you know, you have to establish conceptual understanding before it's dangerous to teach the algorithm or, oh, you could never time children. Those are philosophies and those are red flags. And what I would tell parents to just, you know what, trust your gut. You know, parents, I think, get a little um, silenced because there are an awful lot of parents out there who think, well, I must not understand. I, I mean, I have seen this in my friends who are CEOs of companies who think, well, I must not understand. And I always, I always say to them, listen, if it feels like a trick to you and it doesn't make sense to you, I promise you teaching is not that complicated. I mean, you know, Louisa Motes famously says teaching reading is rocket science. And I get that. There is a science to effective instruction. But that science is not that complicated. We ought to be able to explain it in transparent ways that really smart parents can grasp and understand. And we don't do that well. We tend to retreat into jargon. So like for me, the moment somebody says pedagogy, I stop listening. I can't stand that word because it doesn't convey something um, to the listener that helps them get better understanding. They're stuck on trying to figure out what does that word mean. And we do that a lot as, as helping experts in schools. We do that a lot when we engage with parents and it doesn't help us land an understanding better right? It actually obfuscates understanding. And so I'm all about, let's just talk about things in transparent ways. And so I would say to parents, if it feels like a trick to you, ask for clarification. And if it doesn't make sense to you, you can't make sense of it, even when you ask questions about it, then be a little bit skeptical. You know, there is no such thing really as an evidence-based tactic in instruction. There's only an evidence-based tactic that works for the needs of this learner right now. Okay. And I think sometimes like in the math world, you know, productive struggle is a great example. So I remember a note came home to me as a parent that said, wait, well, we have this new math curriculum. We understand children are having a hard time, but we do not want you to help your children because we really want them to experience productive struggle because productive struggle is going to make them more proficient in math. And of course, I read this and said, that is absolute nonsense. It does not mean that productive struggle can't be useful for some moment of time in learning. It can, but as a blanket tactic that's applied to all kids in the school for the duration of a year? No, that makes no sense. And I think sometimes in the world of math, I have found even with the sort of math um, experts, math education experts, I should say, who are often um, arguing with me (laughs) in social media, they would say we would come to a place of agreement if when, when I asked them, you know, sort of, well, let's talk about that. I mean, I would say that productive struggle could be useful when children are at a generalization stage of learning, which means they have acquired the initial understanding. They've actually built some proficiency with it. So now they 
cleared up some cognitive space where they can think. This is their, now they're, the generalization stage of learning is the opportunity to really problem solve and create and apply and iterate what you have learned. Um, so when a child is in that stage of learning, it makes sense to me to give them a challenging problem that they might wrestle around with and experience this concept of productive struggle. It does not make sense to me to expose that to a child who is in the acquisition stage of learning. I think when you do that, when you think as a teacher, okay, that's an effective tactic, and you just do it without the regard regard to what the learner actually needs, you'll just teach a child to feel frustrated and hate math. You'll just teach a child to bring that work home and fight with parents who don't understand it either. So I think we do a lot of harm when we talk about um, well, this is the way we teach math. We never time children, for example. Well, that's foolish. That's like saying I'm going to train an athlete, but I'm never going to time them. Yeah, talk about that because you, you read about timing and fluency. Talk about that for, for a bit. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think, again, that with parents, I think sometimes it resonates with them, this notion that timing can be sort of the enemy of um, effective instruction or desirable outcomes in math. But fluency is not the enemy of creativity. And if you think about this in any field, think about this like with among uh, musicians or athletes or pilots who are flying planes and might have to think on their feet in a very rapid way to follow a sequence of procedures to keep a plane from crashing. Um, a surgeon, for example, we don't, nobody wants to have surgery conducted on their body by somebody who is uh, halting and slow and thoughtful, <laughs> right? I mean, right. Wanna, you want them to be practiced and facile and automatic so that if something goes wrong, they can really be dynamic and, and solve that problem. But what has happened is there's there's a woman in, in um, the math ed world who has written about uh, fluency in a very demeaning way. And she has made the allegation that uh, any kind of fluency building activity, including timing children, um, causes anxiety. And I think this can sort of resonate with parents because they think back to when they were asked to do things under timed conditions and maybe they felt maybe they remember feeling stressed about that well a lot of us you know i'm almost i guess i'm almost 50 now but when i was learning math um i really got pretty crummy math instruction not from miss petty but from other teachers where you know we we were timed, but we never got any corrective feedback. We were not given the opportunity to practice to try to beat our score. We were not given um, content that was really aligned with a level of proficiency where we could experience better than 90% accuracy as we were responding. So it could have felt very frustrating to us. Um, so you know, that's that's the fear that kind of lands with parents. And they remember that maybe they had some drill and kill experiences that were unpleasant in school. So they go, OK, that makes sense. You're just going to make my child anxious. I'm opposed to timing. And what parents don't understand is that when you say that, that's depriving your child of a, a, a really powerful preventive prevention effect um, in terms of their learning over time you cannot you cannot really build fluency for children 
without giving them practice under timed conditions. And the reason why is because you can take a child to 100% accuracy and if and you could say, okay, they've got it. They're ready for more challenging work. And if you move on based on accuracy alone, you will be wrong about a good number of children who never actually got to mastery because they were very slow and it took a lot of thought and they had to maybe count hash marks or draw a solution or find an easier kind of known quantity and reason their way to this greater quantity. Um, so they can get there and they can get 100% accurate, but it's a very labor intensive process. That is a child that we can tell you just with great certainty that that child is unlikely to retain that skill over time. They're unlikely to be able to use that understanding in the service of more complex problem solving or deeper learning. So we would say, um, the way you find the child who is really at mastery is you have to add a timed dimension to that behavior. So if you've got two kids who are both 100% accurate, but one is really having to labor to get to the answer, but the other one is 100% accurate, it's audit. they don't really have to devote a lot of thought to it. They can really solve it two or three different ways. That learner is more proficient. And the way you capture it is to add it at a timed dimension. So if you give both learners two minutes to complete however many problems they can of that level of difficulty in that two minute period, then that second learner is going to is going to complete many more problems correct than the first learner would for the same amount of time. And that's really important because you want to use that information as a teacher to drive the kinds of um, learning opportunities that you present next. So the second, the second more facile learner is ready to practice flexibility and problem solving. So they're ready for generalization opportunities, whereas that first learner is not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So what you're saying, just in case there are parents listening, is that the fluency part that ability to do it in a certain period of time and in, in a certain way to get through it, the fluency is important to mastering the concepts. And it's like anything else. You do something, you get good at it, you're doing it over and over again, you retain it, it's easier to recall and use and build upon. Is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. And you know, that's a very, you know, we, we can graph these trajectories in children across thousands and thousands of children. It's, it's mathematically, we can model this uh, from skill acquisition to fluency building to mastery. And it produces this very expected curve of growth. And we can actually attach probabilities of being able to be successful in more challenging operations and understanding based on how they do in terms of fluent performance with the basic foundation skills. So let me ask you this. Let's give some advice to parents and to teachers. So for parents who are listening who have kids in uh, K-12, what do you recommend or what advice do you offer to them to figure out how well their kid really is doing in math. Because I look at stuff all the time in doing assessments. You look at uh, the standard benchmarks, you look at things like that. And sometimes the score isn't reflective of what is really happening with a kid. Maybe it's either much lower than, than their ability or it's higher than what they normally produce on a day-to-day -day basis. What advice do you have for parents for understanding how their kid's math performance really is in accordance with their grade? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Lauren. And I'll tell you, I mean, my experience is that uh, many of the math screenings that are used in school are too easy. And it's fascinating because I really think it, this has been a vendor effort to deal with what is a distribution problem in, in the score ranges to maximize accurate predictions. So what they have done, and we say that in a non-jargon way, is they've made the measures easier than grade level content so that they can get a more normal distribution of scores. They've got, you know, kids that can perform a little better on the measure. And this allows them to have greater accuracy of detecting who's um, lowest performing in that distribution of scores. But in effect, when you're when you're measuring kids in content that really is not, it's easier than grade level expectation, then you're running the risk that you're really, you're missing. You are misconcluding that children as a whole are on track in a certain grade level, in a certain school. And so I would say to parents, you really should. And I, and actually, you know, a lot when I train teachers, I will say, what is the proficiency in your third grade of your school? And it's always a red flag to me when teachers look at me like they don't know, and they often don't know. And I don't know how you can be a teacher in a third grade in any school in the United States or any grade and not know what the proficiency status is for your school, right? That's a really important um, characteristic of your teaching job. Right. And so um, that's not the first thing you want to do is pay attention to what is the proficiency range in your own school. And, you know, 50 percent proficiency is not OK. <laughs> that's the mm -hmm. other thing. When you look, you may be disturbed at what you see. And so then I think you want to be aware that if you're looking at and I don't want to say I don't want to call any screeners out because they're all guilty of it. I don't I think you want to be a little bit skeptical that your screener may say that your child is doing fine. But it could be that that screening is really too easy for students. We we ran into this in our tool because by design, we we use very, very rigorous screenings um, at fall, winter, and spring for all grade levels. And they are appropriately aligned with grade level content. But most of the time, we find class-wide learning problems as a result. And that's, that's sort of something we've learned. We have to counsel new systems as they pick up our tool to say, look, this is okay. This is just baseline. This is just going to help us be more efficient about the way we deliver corrective action because our goal at the end of the day is to improve proficiency for all students. So we don't want to give students something that's too easy because we will miss kids. We want to make sure that we're giving rigorous screenings. So I guess for parents, the first thing is rigorous screenings in math are actually kind of rare. Hmm. Our by design uses very rigorous screenings, but others do not in my experience. Um, so year-end proficiency scores, of course, grades are sort of notorious for not being useful metrics by which you could say, okay, my child is on track or not on track, because that's really sort of a negotiation between what the teacher is presenting in terms of content in the classroom and how well the teacher believes that that child is completing assignments, turning things in on time, participating in classwork. I mean, all of that contributes to a grade. So, um, so I think it's parents are in a tough place in terms of math and in knowing whether or not uh, their children are on track. And I guess oftentimes, you know, the canary in the coal mine is is too late. So it's when children take uh, the ACT, for example, that parents go, whoa. 
how in the you, we are both engineers. How do you have a twenty on the ACT in math? That doesn't make sense. We, you've met, you've always made straight A's. You've been in the advanced track. So it's 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 a great question that really highlights a really important problem for U.S. education. We are low on these the international tests, mm-hmm. lower than I think we should be as a country. Yeah, and part of that is really a symptom of this other issue where. We've got screeners that are too easy. We have urine proficiency tests that don't get a lot of attention because systems tend to focus on literacy. And then we sort children and we, we play into this notion that some kids are naturally good at math and some are not. So we track them starting too early. And then we sort of blame the learner, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't do well in the ACT, gosh, you're just not that smart, I guess, you know. So I really would love to see math be revolutionized. And I'm really hoping that we see a science of math movement. So what advice do you have for teachers, especially during this time of COVID, who might be interested in the uh, science of math movement and becoming a part of that or just adjusting and um, you know, their instructional delivery at this time. Do you have anything that, that comes to mind for teachers? Well, you know what? I wrote an article with Robin Cotting. Um, you can get it on my ResearchGate link for free. We published it in the um, National Association of School Psychologists has a periodical called The Communique. And we originally had modern math myths in the title and they made us change it. <laughs> we said <laughs> philosophy-based math instruction versus evidence-based math instruction. What does the evidence say? We focused on really kind of debunking some, some of these common myths, some of which we've talked about today and some of, that we didn't have time to talk about today, which is, which is fine. So I think it's an it's a very accessible piece that parents could read and it's a good starting place to really begin to understand what is the evidence around anxiety in math and timed assessment or timed instruction in math what about procedural understanding versus conceptual understanding are these really are these things two things really separate or do they develop in concert spoiler alert they develop in concert you're a good teacher should do both every day um, so I think that we address some of that in this very short piece that would be a good starting place for teachers to read and I think teachers might come away with some surprises and I think if you feel surprised as a teacher you know have some curiosity about that dig a little deeper and see what what you might learn because I do think that um, it's a red flag when you read something like uh, don't ever teach an algorithm before you've established conceptual understanding that's that is a very extreme bit of advice and so I would say dig a little deep, deeper have some curiosity about that and let the the performance of the learners in front of you be the feedback as to whether or not your tactic is working so if you have heard okay we're going to use this program in this way and you deliver it to your students if you're not simultaneously looking with good, high quality, sensitive data to see whether or not it is actually working for your students, then you're not actually teaching. Mm-hmm. And if parents and teachers are wanting to know more about how to bring spring math to their district, where can they go to get more information? Oh, go to our website, um, www.springmath.com. And we're trying to raise math achievement around the world. <laughs> we would love to. We would love 
to help. I feel like um, every child can be proficient in math. I think I tweeted this a couple of days ago that, you know, success for me in math, algebra success can be defined as success in 130 skills. It's really simple. It's very manageable from K through eight. That's what we want to assess. That's where we want to deliver um, remedial support and intervention. By the way, we could accelerate kids in that way if we wanted to, because we want all all children to have optimal growth. So I would love for people to to check us out. And um, our website's the best place to get more info. Fantastic. And if people want to um, follow you or reach you, Dr. Amanda Vander Hayden, how can they find you? Uh, I'm always on Twitter. I'm at Amanda Vandy one, A-M-A-N-D-A-V-A-N-D-E one. And you can always follow me on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, Um, you can always send me an email. I'm on, I'm on Gmail, Amanda Vandy at gmail.com. Or you can find me on the spring math website too, and, and connect to me that way. And what would you like to share that I didn't ask you about today? Uh, well, I mean, I, I love that we talked about effective instruction and that it's knowable, it's measurable, it's available to all teachers, and it really is the, the magic sauce for kids, right? So um, effective instruction is about producing an effect on student learning. And I would just love to finish with just one little quote from Kent Johnson, which is teaching is not telling. So just because I told you doesn't mean I taught you. And that is to say that, you know, we have to be... Um, thoughtful about did my instruction, whatever it was that I selected today to use as a teacher, did it actually cause you to do better as a learner? Because if it didn't, then it wasn't effective. And then I need to do something differently tomorrow. That's pretty powerful. If we thought about effective instruction that way, we would get better results for kids. Well, let's leave it there because that's a beautiful place and a good thought to end. Um, Dr. Amanda Vander Hayden, I love your passion. I love your knowledge. Um, and how you talk about math, it is exactly, I think, what we need in this country. And I think you're right. We need a, a science of math movement. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me today. And if you like this and you want to hear more, visit me at my website, homeworkisstupid.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at homeworkisstupid, on LinkedIn, Lauren Bongiovanni, and Twitter at Lauren underscore homework. Please leave a review, like, follow, and subscribe. Thanks again.